everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Daniela. And I'm Natalie. And today, we're sitting down with Mukalika Banerjee. Banerjee is an associate professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She has published four books, including Cultivating Democracy, five books, forgive me, um, Cultivating Democracy, Path and Unarmed, Why India Votes, and The Suri. She is also a writer for the Indian Express, which is a daily newspaper that covers India's relevant political stories and publishes credible commentaries and editorials on current events. Her books and research explore the topics of anthropology, politics in India, democracy, and citizenship. Banerjee works to find common ground on which to establish new ideas and policy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I know that you have extensively studied the social movements um, in India. And I was wondering what excites you the most about what you have seen in regard to the farmer protests? The farmers' protests were quite extraordinary because they happened during various COVID lockdowns, right? So it wasn't when the whole world seemed to be shutting down. Um, We had this extraordinary flowering of um, protest. There was, uh, and as your listeners may know, there was, it was instigated. It was a response to the government of India, the central government bringing in three laws that would have changed the way in which agri- <clears throat> agricultural produce would have been marketed and sold. Mm. And the farmers felt that while there was definitely need for reform, they this was not the way to do it because it was going to disadvantage them. Mm. So they in there has been a real tradition of taking out demonstrations and marching to the capital to make yourselves visible as a body of people. So all protest groups have done this to a certain extent in India. Um, And so the farmers decided to march to, to India, to Delhi, New Delhi, the capital. And the government decided to stop them in their tracks by digging up highways, by unleashing water cannons and, um, just with brute force, basically, would not let them exercise their democratic right to protest. Mm -hmm. So instead of going away, tail between their legs defeated, the farmers just stopped where they'd been stopped on the outskirts of Delhi and decided to set up these huge encampments and did basically a sit-in, saying, we're not budging from here, we're not going away till you take back those laws. And it started in November of... 2020, and it carried on until November 2021. So it went through four very severe seasons in Delhi with extreme cold, extreme heat, rainfall. Uh, it was it was a uh, it was physically demanding. But what, as an anthropologist, I found fascinating was, and you know, I call this a sort of republic of protest, because it was not only a sit-in and a protest against the government, it required enormous resources of uh, innovative ways in which to continue farming. You know, they could not afford to not farm for 12 months. So Mm. how they manage farming from a distance and circulating family members from the protest sites to there. But what, what was really fascinating was 
the sites of protest themselves, which I called republics of protest, had a, a certain culture uh, of uh, solidarity, of looking out for each other, of holding these things. You know, there's a sick word, uh, a Punjabi word called langar, which is anyone who goes, goes to a Gurdwara, which is a sick place of worship, uh, is fed food for free. And we see Sikhs all over the world, in America, in Canada, in, in across Europe, did this. You know, they've been doing it during the Turkish earthquake uh, uh, relief efforts. Sikhs are, are famous for producing, for providing food for anyone who needs it. Um, and a lot of these farmers were Sikh or Punjabi, you know, and, and they... Uh, they had langars, so everybody was fed and watered, of course, but they also began to have langars for music, for books, for people to come and borrow books anytime they wanted and culture. read. And Sorry? Like culture. Yes, and cu uh, culture and education. So it was not just about entertainment. It was about, well, if you're protesting, you've got to learn more, you've got to you know, educate yourself, you've got to learn to speak in public, you've got to learn to work with others. So it was a site where they weren't sitting passively, it was lively and there was stuff happening there, which told us, gave us also a glimpse of not just their resilience, but also the texture of that community was what you would see and aspire to as democratic culture. And that's what was for me, that was a really interesting thing. But of course, you know, it, it, they won because uh, otherwise intransigent government actually had to give in finally after 12 months and, and withdraw those three laws and they left. Hmm. That's like amazing, just like that many people coming together for one purpose and not just screaming, but actually intelligent beings all on the same page and proving that these are people that need to be heard and they were respectful about it. And they were determined and they did it in almost, it seems, an artful and thoughtful way. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious about um, how do you feel the protests made a difference in possibly the way the government operates in its structure, you know, in its in its ability to give the people more of a voice as would seem appropriate? Or did you see results more manifesting in terms of policy and law? Well, I mean, as I said, the the the, the, the demand of the farmers was the these laws should be repealed and that they were right so unfortunately the farmers had also acknowledged that it this sector does need reform and that reform has to be thoughtful it has to be consultative it has to take farmers with them and the government hasn't done that you know that would have been a better compliment to the farmers you know they yes they won but they also need this reform and that, that we don't see that actually happening. But one thing to say about this protest was also it showed to social scientists that how ethics and values derived from, say, religious life can be brought into politics in a really productive and positive way. So a lot of the values of Sikhism, which is the religion of many of those farmers, not all, uh, but this idea that of service, of being able to serve others, of looking out for other people, the dignity of labor that Sikhism celebrates, that everybody's equal in front of uh, the community and that you all do your own little bit. You know, people are socialized in their religious lives to act like this. But it was that ethic of being a Sikh, of Sikhi, what is called Sikhi, uh, of how to be a Sikh, 
that was used to create this republic of protest because otherwise you know you're sitting there in the cold where do you draw the resources from to behave with dignity with civility mm -hmm. you learn you use the values that you've been raised with mm. yes and that kind of brings me to the more recent event of the Parazote Yatra if i'm pronouncing that right and um from what i've learned about it the objective of this march was um, to fight against the politics of fear, bigotry, and prejudice, and the economics of livelihood destruction, increasing unemployment, and just growing inequality. So do you think this march has not only like filled its objective, but kind of furthered the mission of the farmers' protests and in any way started to reform um, the government and also push the religion that these people are so strongly living by? It's so interesting that you should connect those two things, you know, because they're not directly linked. But yes, they are the two most important um, civil society moves that have happened in the last three years. Right? And the, <clears throat> the Bharat Jodo Yatra is, you know, Jodo literally means to join, to bring together. Mm -hmm. And Yatra is a journey. It's a travel. Um, so it's a bit like a pilgrimage. And, it, and as you know, it occurred from the southern tip of India, Kanyakumari, to the northern tip in Kashmir. And this was 3,700 kilometers. And it started on the 7th of September, ended on the 30th of January. So it went on for five months, mm -hmm. thousands of people walking across uh, India, across the length of India. And Rahul Gandhi was leading it, the most prominent Congress leader, but there was also a huge contingent of civil society organizations led by Yogendra Yadav, who unconvened by him, really. And Yogendra Yadav was also a very important person in, in bringing various farmers' organizations together in the farmers' protest as well. So there were linkages of people who fought for both the causes. But the Bharajoro Yatra was much more a demonstration of, you know, I went and walked for two days in September with the Yatra. Because as an anthropologist, again, I was reading, you know, the website and I was looking at the photos. And I, you need to be there to feel the energy, to see what it was like. And, and what I saw, which I hadn't really read about, which, is, which made going worth it, was that it created what we would call fraternity in the Indian constitution, which is basically solidarity with people. It was, it was a very unusual space in India where it didn't matter what your caste was, what your class was, who, where you'd come from, what language. You know, people were in common purpose walking together, we're walking and looking out for each other was the main task, right? So it creates a certain civility of interaction, which is otherwise very difficult to achieve. So this was actually not that dissimilar to the to the cultures of protest, the republic of protest that, that the farmers had. So you're right mm -hmm. to draw that parallel. Um, it, it was astonishing when it started, we didn't know whether anyone would join the Yatra, whether anyone would have any interest in it. But there were thousands of people along the way, the entire way, because people were genuinely curious. Because as a lot of people, I stopped and talked to a lot of the bystanders and they said, you know, how can you not support something that is about bringing people together? It's, it's you know, it's about love. It's about creating solidarity. It's a good message. You asked whether it made any difference to the government. I don't, I think... Well, not outwardly, but I will be very surprised if 
it made no difference because it was such an astonishing display of Indians wanting to speak and and support a message of love rather than one of polarization and hatred, yeah. which a lot of the right wing chauvinistic politics of uh, the central government in India is about. Mm. And do you see something, another movement like this happening again to push the message even further? I think they are planning. There are already several smaller uh, campaigns, you know, not uh, small in the sense that every state, there are 29 states in India, and each of them is going to have, um, you know, Haat Se Haat Jodo Yatra, where people join hands across it and mm-hmm. mini yatras in it. So it's it's only the beginning, actually, this Bharat Jodo Yatra, I'm told. There are mm-hmm. several campaigns uh, planned around it. Thank you. Yeah, so with this important context, let's talk about social movements themselves. And in relation to social movements around the world and sort of generalizing them, do you have any concerns about how social movements occur and are executed and perhaps a cautionary tale? I think social movements require um, a certain commitment to creating what, you know, in my new book, Cultivating Democracy, I called active citizenship. It's this idea of being an active citizen once you've finished voting, you know, when the elections are over and a government is in place. That's not when you go home. That's when you continue to be vigilant, you hold the government accountable, you fight for causes, and social movements come out of that impulse, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest problems with and explanations for the democratic backsliding that we've seen in a number of different, fairly well-established democracies across the world, whether it's the United States, whether it's the UK, whether it is India, these are well-established democracies. And the backsliding really has come out of complacency. We felt there were institutions in place that would create democracy magically. And we could go off and do other things and not care about causes. And the whole purpose of social movements, where you continue to uh, bring, come together in, for a common agenda to fight for justice, for causes that you believe in, that impulse lessens with greater com- complacency. You know? So when there is complacency, you have less social movements. People who fight and, and, and are part of social movements feel a certain urgency of the need to, uh, to fight for causes. And the backsliding, it's partly, it's to a large extent economic because there has been the kind of precarity that advanced capitalism has created across the world, the kind of social inequality, the rise of social inequality has meant that actually just the sheer survival has become such a battle for large sections of the population that to be an active citizen requires an extra capacity that people have simply had to give up because of of of, of this you know fight for survival so the cautionary thought there really is that you know we have to we have to ask questions of economic policy not whether or not you're interested in economics because it determines spare political capacity that people may have for being active citizens. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, kind of bringing this back to India, um, what are movements doing to appeal to a country with such a large population of one billion people? And if a movement is able to 
reach these people, is it still contributing to a decline in democracy? I think the decline in democracy is, in India at least, is not because of a lack of social movements. Mm -hmm. right? There is a real, uh, it has had a very vibrant civil society culture right from independence onwards, partly because the national movement was, you know, the fight for independence was precisely that kind of participatory mass movement. It wasn't just a couple of elites fighting for this in courts. It was people took to the streets. And this is kind of what Gandhi is credited with, is that he took these ideas to the people. It revitalized ideas that existed in small communities, joined people together, brought them out on the streets, demanding independence of the British colonial government. And that inheritance of protest remains in independent India. So we've always, you know, there is there are very few causes that there haven't been prominent social movements of. But when you have an authoritarian government, uh, this is exactly what they fear. Because people power you know, you can capture institutions, you can capture officials, you can capture politicians. How do you capture people? How do you capture, like you say, this vast population? Mm -hmm. And therefore, all kinds of techniques, for instance, at the moment, if you travel across India, you'll see the subliminal advertising. Every lamppost has a, has a photograph of the prime minister. Everywhere you go, there are images of him. There is every sack of rice that people receive in welfare has his image on it. Your COVID certificate has his photograph on it. So there is a sort of an attempt to subliminally capture people, you know, because that's what I was saying. That's a challenge for any authoritarian government. How do you capture people? But ultimately, that fails simply because there is such a momentum and such an energy in that sector that is not easily captured. And in a sense, democratic backsliding, as we were saying a little bit earlier, is the result of the lack of that energy or the lack of holding politicians accountable, the lack of active citizens. But th that deficit does not exist in India. It is when that force actually accelerates and multiplies that you can begin to have democratic renewal. Yeah. And I mean, going back to an article you wrote for the Indian Express, um, you kind of assert that a key to like going back to the farming protests, um, a key to its success was, quote, a combination of dynamicism and status, hope and fear and trust and vigilance. And I found this contrasting dynamic to be quite interesting, and I was wondering if you could speak more on it. Well, I think, like I've been saying, you know, democracy and any uh, desire for change for the better can ha is predicated on vigilance. And that vigilance has to be cultivated. Right? So cultivation, you know, I think we have to think about cultivation very seriously, both as a practice and, and, and also as a metaphor. Because if you think of a practice, if you cultivate anything, right? farmers cultivate crops, but most of us, you know, either have a garden or may have just a plant on a windowsill. We know that 
for that plant to produce leaves and flowers, you've got to look at it every day to make sure it doesn't need something. Is it getting enough light? Uh, is there a fuzzy white fungus on it? Uh, is it looking too dried out? Does it need to move with the sun? You're constantly, cultivation is about vigilance. But while you're doing that vigilance, it's not just about um, misgiving. It is also about hope because every time you look after that plant, you're also imagining the flowers. You're imagining it getting bigger. It is about hope. So you need to, if we want to protect our politics, if we want to create a flourishing democracy where we continue to have our rights, that we continue to be treated as citizens with dignity, then we cannot say, well, you know, I have constitutionally, I have a right to be X, Y, and Z and, and assume that it will happen because governments can do all kinds of things uh, that we may not notice. And suddenly, for instance, you know, I live and work in Britain where there has been a bill passing through parliament um, curbing people's right to protest, curbing people's right to go on strike. And unless you know what is happening and actually protest about the uh, the removal of the right to protest, before you know it, one day suddenly you wake up in the morning and you've lost your right to protest on the streets. Mm. So it takes that constant vigilance, which, uh, but it's also, so that's why I said, you know, it is about fear that you may lose it, but it's also about hope that if you look after it, you're going to have something to look forward to. And it's this sense that each of us, it's not just politicians, it's not just thought leaders, it's not just religious leaders who are going to um, make sure that the, you know th this happens, but it is up to each citizen, each one of us has something to do in this story. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I was just thinking like that takes exceptional leadership to be able to navigate the changes in policy that happen while you're protesting and to keep your people not to constrain them, but to keep them aware of what's going on, to keep them passionate, but then also remind them about what they're still fighting for. Yeah, and I don't know whether this is a question of uh, leadership, Natalie, because I think it, it is also, um, yes, to a certain extent, yes, we're all, you know, uh, student unions, for instance, can have really charismatic, inspiring leaders, uh, and they remind you of the need for this. But here, because, you know, we're sitting in a university talking about this, there's, there's a very interesting new book on what universities can do for democracy. Um, it's by Roland Daniels and two other uh, authors, and, and he's uh, the president of Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. now, it's a very interesting thing for us to think about as members of a university that this, what you just summarized, as you know, the uh, the need to remain well-informed, to be aware of what is going on. It is this sense that a university gives you. That is what a university education is giving you. In addition to, of course, you may be studying engineering or you may be studying economics. It doesn't matter. But there is something. What a university education gives you is the commitment to remaining well-informed about the world based on evidence and learning to weigh that evidence and form your judgments, right? This is regardless of what you study. The second thing is also the university, and I've been thinking with these ideas a lot and I, you know, I'm linking them to my own. I think it's very interesting that in order to 
I showed through my own ethnography, for instance, in a village. It's all kinds of aspects of community life that teach you how to be political without. So, you know, working with others to bring in a paddy harvest teaches you the virtues of cooperation. Just to give you one example. Mm. And if you were to think now of universities, how do you inculcate a civic sense that, you know, what you teach little children, don't pluck a flower in a park, because if everybody plucked a flower, there wouldn't be any flowers left. That's how you teach them, right? You, you teach a child not to pluck a flower on that basis. What does a university do? Often you're doing, it doesn't have to be political debating societies. It could be playing a team sport. It could be singing in a choir. It could be organizing a club. It could be running a podcast series. You are working with people who may or may not be friends, but you're Working with them because you're interested in a certain issue, it teaches you to work with other people. It teaches you to suppress self-interest. Mm -hmm. It teaches you how to imagine a common goal and a common good and what is required for that. These are the essential building blocks of being an active citizen later in life. Mm -hmm. So all the stuff that goes on on campus are precisely those things that a university education gives you that contributes to democratic culture later. Yes, I'm totally with you that it's almost infused into the culture of the group of people. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's great advice for students. Thank you. And we have just enough time for one more question. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to ask you about your book, The Sari, which explores the relationship between the Sari and India's history and their present. And we were hoping that you could tell us a bit about if the history of the sari lends itself to a political or symbolic interpretation of the garment. Okay, so the sari has a very political story and um, and continues to have one. But because we have so little time, let me say the one thing that your listeners may be interested in hearing, which is that if you think about the world today, right, and women from multiplicity of cultures, Indian women are, are amongst the few, South Asian women more generally, but Indian women in particular, are the only ones who continue to wear the sari on a daily basis, not as costume, not like a kimono, but as clothing. So they wear it to work as clothing, as opposed to they haven't made it a once in a 10 years costume. So the book that I wrote with my co-author, Daniel Miller, was... Uh, asking the question, how can you be, how can Indian women be so thoroughly modern and do all kinds of jobs and, and wear something that looks so antiquated? It is full length. It is pleated. It is, it is an asymmetric garment. It is five meters of cloth that has been wrapped around the body. So how can you have modern women wearing something like this and not tailored clothing? And our very brief, you know, our, our answer to that question is that actually the sari is the quintessential modern garment because modernity is about multiplicity of roles, that the same individual is able to be a mother in the morning, a commuter, a boss, a lover, a, a, a good daughter-in-law. She's having to be all of these different things and this wrapped and tucked and draped garment is her ally because you, the woman is able to present herself in those multiplicity of roles in different ways 
by very small adjustments to her sari where uh, she can change her look. If you're wearing tailored clothing, that's it. You know, if you're wearing shirt and trousers, you're going to look like a woman in shirt and trousers for the rest of the day, right? You, you suddenly you can't say, well, I want to flash my legs. Well, sorry, girl, you're wearing trousers. But in a sari, a sari, because it is so malleable, uh, you can actually change your self-presentation. And so therefore, it actually becomes the, like I say, the quintessential modern garment. Thank you. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> <laughs>